My name is Heather Conley. I direct our Europe program here, and we are absolutely honored and delighted to welcome Minister Jean-Marc Arrault, the French Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Development, to CSIS. The minister comes at a, an exceptional moment of international turmoil. But before we begin, I, I must begin to offer our great and heartfelt condolences and express our full sympathy and solidarity with you, Mr. Minister, and the French people. It is hard to imagine, it has only been seven days since 83 innocents were murdered on a day of national celebration, which tragically turned into a three-day period of mourning. Our thoughts and prayers are with the victims who are recovering from the, their devastating injuries. Mr. Minister, you have been in your current position for just five short months, yet you've been an, a, 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 an incredible witness to history, the outcome of the United Kingdom referendum, a historic NATO summit, which saw an increase of NATO forces along NATO's eastern flank. We've seen China's refusal to recognize the ruling of the permanent court of our arbitration, and just a few days ago on Friday, we all witnessed a failed coup attempt in NATO ally Turkey. But you are very familiar with challenges. Prior to assuming your position as foreign minister, you served as prime minister from 2012 to 2014 and was the long-serving mayor of France's third largest industrial city, the beautiful city of Nantes, from 1989 to 2012. After Minister Arrault uh, delivers his remarks, he's generously agreed to have a, a discussion, a moderated discussion, and then we will welcome and invite our audience uh, to join in this conversation. Minister, again, we know you're incredibly busy with many meetings with the Anti-Daesh Coalition. Thank you for taking time to come and visit with us. As you can see from this extensive audience, we are very eager to hear your words. And with your applause, please welcome Minister Jean-Marc Arrault. Thank you very much for your warm welcome. Thank you, Mrs. Conley. It's a great pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, I speak in French, but uh, I think you have a, a good traduction, translation, yes? Thank you once again, Ms. Connolly, for your warm words of welcome. And I would also like to thank everyone who is here in the audience who has come out to this meeting. And in fact, as you will recall, a week ago, France was struck once again by terrorism. This occurred in Nice. On the day that we celebrate liberty, equality, and fraternity. My counterpart, friend, and colleague, John Kerry, had just arrived that morning. I had greeted him at the Champs-Élysées to share with him a moment of unity, a, a moment of unity based on our shared values at the Place de la Concorde. A few hours later, we learned of this terrible news. These attacks, which killed so many people from all different backgrounds, remind us that we cannot take these values for granted if we do not defend them ourselves. 
In order to defend these values, France relies first and foremost on what it is, an open society, a republic that is committed to allowing its citizens, regardless of where they come from, to live together. This model is being put to the test. Among these tests, terrorism has, without doubt, proved to be the most difficult since the end of the Second World War. But believe, believe me when I say that we are fully determined to preserve what we are. Despite the efforts of Daesh and Al-Qaeda to divide us, this model endures. France will remain an open society. It will also remain a country that operates according to the rule of law in its fight against the scourge. In order to succeed, this battle is taking place in our countries and also outside of our countries, where centers of radicalization in the Middle East and in Africa must be eradicated. We cannot accept the fact that in all corners of the world, people continue to be tortured, that our young people in America, as well as in Europe, are being subject to propaganda that promotes killing and leads to mass crimes. France is mobilizing its efforts together with its allies and its partners. And France is counting on their solidarity because the challenge posed by terrorism concerns us all. This solidarity is a two-way street. It results, for example, in France's support for the efforts in African countries to combat Boko Haram and to combat jihadist groups in the Sahel, where our soldiers help to prevent an entire country, Mali, from falling into the hands of terrorists in 2013. This solidarity also prompts us to take action against Daesh together with the United States and all our partners in the coalition in Iraq and in Syria. In fact, this was the purpose of my presence here today in Washington. This solidarity also inspires our initiatives to find a solution to the crises in the Middle East, uh, notably regarding the Israeli-Palestinian issue, a, an issue where France is trying to reinvigorate the in international community's efforts, uh, and above all, with respect to the Syrian tragedy. We also benefit from this same solidarity from the United States, which is our oldest ally, which has always stood alongside us at difficult times. And I must say that the French-American alliance has, has been, is stronger now than ever in Africa, in the Middle East, but also in New York at the Security Council, and of course, with respect to our exchange of intelligence, which is so important to our joint efforts to fight terrorism. We need to continue enhancing this exchange if we want to prevent tragedies such as those in Nice, uh, in San Bernardino, or even in Orlando from happening again. This solidarity also comes from the member states of the European Union. It was clearly expressed after the November 13 attacks when France invoked the solidarity clause of the Treaty on European Union. This was a first, and our European partners stepped up to the mark by providing political and military support. And this is the case again today following the attacks in Nice. In order to address the threat of terrorism, our countries need to be strong. 
They need to cooperate with each other now more than ever. On the other side of the Atlantic, Europe provides an essential framework for this solidarity. Therefore, France needs a strong Europe. Let us be honest. The results of the British referendum once again portray the image of a Europe in crisis. I do not wish to downplay the historic nature of the decision made by the British people to leave the EU. Uh, neither will I hide from you my serious doubts concerning the motives behind the organization of this referendum and, my con and uh, concerning the reasons behind the British people's decision. In a country that has been especially impacted by economic choices that have affected social cohesion, I mentioned the violence of the campaign, and it was very obvious to everyone that come July 24th, after the Brexit uh, vote, the proponents of Brexit abandoned their promises. The result of this vote leaves us the bitter feeling that it has been a huge waste. Brexit ushers in a difficult period, a period of uncertainty, uh, uncertainty first and foremost for the UK itself, because it is the British people who will be the first to suffer from the consequences of their decision. But France does not have reason to, to rejoice either. For France, the United Kingdom is much more than an ally. It is a brother in arms, a friend. It's a partner to which we are bound with respect to our defense and our security, with whom we share what is most important, a similar role in the Security Council, a common status as a nuclear power, a strong attachment to global diplomacy, as well as common interests that bind us together in our responses to major global challenges. Today, we have to step up to the situation. Our British friends intend to implement the popular will that was expressed, and the European Union intends to implement the procedure that has been laid down in Article 50 of the Treaty on European Union uh, in the event that a member state decides to leave. There is no vacuum. The UK is still a member state with its rights and obligations up until the withdrawal procedure has been completed. In order to minimize uncertainty as much as possible, it is up to the British authorities to invoke the procedure in order to initiate negotiations, which will make it possible to establish the terms of withdrawal and at the same time establish the UK's future relationship with Europe as a third country. That is the reality that we are facing today. We would like these negotiations, France would like these negotiations to take place in a transparent manner, a transparency to which the European people are entitled with due regard for the interests of all sides. This was the purpose of our call for the respect of certain principles, notably with regard to ensuring balance between rights and obligations. The heads of state and government of the 27 EU member states have already reaffirmed that the single market has four freedoms that are inseparable. The free movement of goods, the free movement of services, free movement of capital, and free movement of people. You cannot have one without the other. That is what the European Union is. And for the EU, it is clear that this is an unprecedented situation. 
we may not have had this experience before, and we may not have responses to all the questions right now, but we do have rules and a method. And in any event, in one way or another, the UK will retain close links with its European partners. This is what Theresa May's government wants, and this also reflect, reflects what France wants. We want things to work in an intelligent, orderly, responsible manner. What is certain, and I'd like to say this because it may be interpreted in this way, that this could have a, a potential spillover effect. That's what's being said. And it's true that often Brussels is, is criticized, just like Washington, D.C. is in the United States. But the EU remains strong. Despite what is being said by all the Eurosceptics, and there are many of them, not only in Europe, but elsewhere as well, who are trying to exploit the British voters' decision, but to no avail. I'm sure, I'm convinced they will not succeed. Moreover, these elections have led to a shock, not only in Great Britain, uh, those who uh, didn't believe Brexit would happen saw that it actually did, but it's also produced a shock throughout the rest of Europe. And polls show that there is an increase in pro-European sentiment in the main member states. Notably because the Europeans have clearly realized that the Brexit supporters were actually the first to abandon their responsibilities the day after June 23rd. And that after leading this campaign, which was somewhat demagogical, they didn't really think about the after, the after and what would come after if Brexit, if the Brexit referendum succeeded. And I think this is an important point. We can't commit errors in the follow-up to this process. That's why we have to be clear in the way in which we uh, uh, undertake the negotiations. It has to be done responsibly, but also with clarity. Obviously, the terrorist threat and Brexit cannot be compared, but they do carry the same risk. I would say the same risk, the risk of disintegration, the temptation to focus inward, the t uh, risk of an introverted, introverted Europe, which is too busy resolving its own problems to deal with the uh, world affairs. We've had to fight this temptation, which runs counter to the best interests of Europeans. And we have to see in this situation of Brexit what we will do in the best interests of Europeans. And at the same time, we have to look at world affairs. We have to be interested in world affairs. And we need to continue this fight. I'm sure that this fight against terrorism requires increased international mobilization. The protection of our citizens is all the more effective if this is part of a collective effort undertaken by the international community. You can count on France to ensure that the European Union will remain fully committed to this objective and that it will be done in close cooperation with Germany. For France, Germany is a partner with which we will be trying to move Europe forward. This is a historic responsibility, and my priority, as you said uh, when I took up office, one of my priorities has been from the onset to strengthen this momentum in support of our two countries and to strengthen the relationship between our two countries and especially to put this uh, in the service of the European project. 
is with this in mind that together with my colleague Frank Walter Steinmeier uh, worked with me the day after the British referendum to make joint proposals to strengthen and revitalize Europe and to do so with concrete projects, in particular in the areas of security, economy, and migration. These proposals will contribute to the debate with our partners, a contribution that will enrich the debate that we must have with our 27 partners so that on September 16th, when the heads of European states and governments meet in Slovakia and uh, Bratislava, uh, the country that is presiding the European Union, so they can send a message of confidence, a message of confidence to the European people and a message of confidence from Europe to the world. Let us take a moment to look at the context. Looking objectively at the situation, we can say, see that the European Union has always been able to overcome other crises. We have faced many crises that we have overcome, and that ultimately these crises have strengthened the EU. At least that is the, my hope, that is my uh, wish, that I hope that the politicians will be up to the task. This is a very historic context. At any rate, Brexit may force us to overhaul our goals and even our methods. But we have been able to overcome other challenges in the past. You may recall the countless predictions about the breakup of the euro. When I took up my position as prime minister in 2012, the first trip that I made was to Singapore. And there I was told, well, the euro is going to disappear soon. And I had to fight to convince them. And history has shown that the euro has not disappeared and that the EU was able to overcome these difficulties. Just as it was able to deal with the uh, massive influx of refugees, especially those coming from Syria fleeing the war uh, in order to ensure their survival. For Europeans themselves, decisions may appear to be too slow or inadequate. The, the impression is that the EU has a hard time making decisions or that decisions are slow in coming or that there is, it takes a long time to implement these decisions, and that is true. Sometimes it is difficult. I've experienced this myself when I've uh, participated in the council, the meetings of the Council of Foreign Ministers, 28 of us around the table, uh, can be sometimes a long and arduous process. But we need to devote our energy to this, and we need to continue to uh, be passionate about Europe. But we have overcome challenges, and I can give you some examples. In, six, in the space of six months, given the refugee crisis, Europe decided to protect its borders. In the Schengen zone in particular, we had a, uh, an agreement on establishing uh, border guard units and uh, coast guard units. And this was a very efficient decision that was implemented quite, quite rapidly. And this shows that uh, we do have the political will. It depends. It all hinges on political will. But this all often depends on the circumstances and the context, and that we need. But we need to step up to this task. The crisis that resulted from the British referendum should allow us to reinvent ourselves. What unites us? What do we want the Europe of tomorrow to be? Europe has always been a process a desire, an ambition. And it is still worth remembering 
the original intention behind the creation of a Europe that signified peace and freedom for its people. But the EU must now fulfill broader functions, ensuring economic prosperity within the framework of sustainable development that will protect the environment for future generations, protecting people from threats, notably from outside Europe, restoring the hope of young Europeans by showing them the importance of moving to forward together. Europe must respond to these aspirations for security, prosperity, employment, and for new inspirational projects. The future of European projects also depends on its capacity to promote values, its creative potential, the capacity to foster mutual enrichment, in short, a culture. The Erasmus study program study is a successful example which has allowed millions of young people to enrich themselves through the knowledge of others thanks to student mobility. We need to ex extend this to all of our young people. These are the types of projects that will make Europe successful and what causes the, the difficulties and the, the, the frustrations that we are seeing and the lack of, uh, of perspectives are have to be overcome with projects such as this. Finally, the EU remains, regardless of Brexit, a world power. Jacques Delors talked about a federation of nation states. The old European countries have existed for many times, for many years, so we can't talk about necessarily about a federal nation system. We, each country is its own nation, but it's a really original construct. And this has allowed us to stay together and to ensure peace without having war for so long. It is still, Europe is still a coherent group of 450 million inhabitants, the largest trading power in the world, the largest donor of development aid. And in the future, just like today, the EU will still be a single market for the United States, a market in which American firms will be able to seize opportunities, because that is also Europe. And Europe will remain an area of justice and freedom, a point of reference in terms of economic regulation, with the aim of establishing a level playing field for all com companies. The EU will also remain a key actor with respect to stabilization and development in an increasingly chaotic world. With respect to NATO, in which France has once again taken its full place, it will obviously not be affected by the UK's separation from the EU. With respect to major current issues, nuclear proliferation, climate change, the Middle East, dialogue with Russia, the transatlantic partnership will continue to play a key role. European, and we saw this especially during the last summit in, in Warsaw. Europeans are counting on the United States to remain fully committed and to lend its support to Europe's unity. It's true that sometimes this may be called into question, but the United States, sometimes people feel that the United States are not sufficiently interested in Europe. But all you have to do is read the speech that President Obama gave when he was in Europe, and particularly in Germany. It was a wonderful speech about Europe. And I would even say that it was uh, one of the best speeches about Europe. And if you read it, if Europeans were to talk about Europe that way, we'd be much better off. But it did reassure me. I can, let, I can t say that much. In conclusion, I think that the British referendum should also prompt us to reflect on the difficult period that our representative democracies are experiencing. 
the rise of populism in Europe, and everywhere, everywhere throughout Europe, populist parties are gaining. But I also see this in the United States and the political developments in the U.S. And these are real issues that we cannot avoid. Our political system, a system of representation, of elections, and uh, we have to look at the issue of elitism. It's an issue that's being felt in Europe, also in the United States. Nobody is sheltered from these difficulties. And it is true that we must look for explanations, thus the importance of working together with people like you who are examining these issues through, their through your research so that we can understand and not judge. I think that there is an impact of, of uh, globalization on our social models, and this is creating stress and, and anguish. It creates possibilities and new perspectives, but also concerns. This impact is so profound that if we are not careful, the temptation to focus inwards will become overwhelming, and it will lead people to call our open societies into question together with the international order that we have patiently constructed since the tragedy of the Second World War. It's fragile. This international order is fragile. We must remember that in the United States as in Europe. We must be up to the task. Our responsibility is to respond to the concerns of our citizens who expect to be protected from attacks, whether they are perceived or real attacks, threats also to benefit, who wish to benefit from a better distribution of the fruits of growth and the efforts to reduce inequalities. In my view, this is the only way to prevent the populace who are endangering our democracies from winning. And in this area, also, Europe and the United States should work together. This is a challenge that is shared by us all. Our societies, our cultures, our ways of thinking may be varied, and our responses will certainly take different forms, especially in the way that we go about organizing democracy. But we must respect our traditions. Intellectual exchanges between us should generate new ideas, the ideas that we so desperately need. So once again, I am delighted for this invitation. I am so happy that CSIS agreed to have this conversation today. And I hope that the ties between the CSIS Center and the French research community will flourish. I think you have a difficult task together, but we need this research more now more than ever to be able to understand the complexity of the world and to help political leaders on both sides of the Atlantic. We have our different systems, of course, but we have common values, and we cannot forget that. We must remember the values that we share, but we also must have an intelligent debate, and we must also work together to seek solutions to the complexities of the world that can be a source of fear, but they can also help us pave the way for a better future for all of our citizens. And that is actually what is the great, the greatness of politics, the, the greatness but also the misery of politics, because in circumstances such as what we are seeing today, we have to be aware of the responsibilities that we shoulder, but we as politicians we must also remember that we have to go back. We have to go beyond these sometimes ridiculous debates and discuss, uh, and polemics, and we need to work together to find solutions. Thank you again for your.
for your attention. Mr. Minister, thank you for those comprehensive remarks. Sometimes things are moving so quickly, it's hard to put it all into context, and you helped us put that into context. Thank you so much. Um, with the time remaining, um, I'd like to pull out some of your comments from your remarks and then turn to our audience. I'd like to talk a little bit uh, about events as, as they've been unfolding in Turkey. And certainly the impact on the uh, anti-Daesh coalition meetings here. You said a few days ago, I believe, you were concerned about Turkey's ability to be a strong partner in the counterterrorism fight, particularly against Daesh. And so I'd welcome your comments on, on that as well. Very concerning developments, uh, the state of emergency today, uh, this massive sweep following uh, the coup. What is Turkey's orientation towards Europe today? Does it have a possibility or have the events over the last few days changed your mind? about Turkey's direction, despite the, 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 the difficulties of the coup, we're, we're actually seeing quite an extraordinary aftermath following the coup. Yes, certainly the situation in Turkey is concerning, but we have to be completely unambiguous. The military coup d'etat that was attempted should have been condemned or should be condemned with all of our might. That's what France has done with all democratic countries. The United States in the same way, because there is a, a government in power that is legitimate in Turkey that is the result of free elections that uh, met all standards. So we couldn't, one way or another, let any ambiguity remain in terms of condemning a military coup d'etat. But at the same time, we asked that the rule of law operate completely, including for monitoring the people suspected or at the origin of this coup d'etat, so that things needed to be resolved through the system of justice. And we have seen the beginning of a process that is concerning and that is worrisome and that gives the impression of going beyond that process. I think it was the duty of our countries to remind Turkey of the need to stay in the context of respecting the principles that the country itself had committed to. I would remind or, or just uh, say that Turkey is part of the Council of Europe and has done so uh, or been part of this since 1949, of NATO since 1952. It's both a partner country with a clear strategic role and a country that has committed to evolve and to comply with law and human rights. And it even abolished the death penalty. Now today, that it could be reinstated. So it is our duty without 
because with really without interfering, we must say this is not acceptable, especially since between the European Union and Turkey, discussions and negotiations have been underway for a long time on different aspects, different matters, which theoretically are looking at the possibility of Turkey becoming part of the European Union is just a possibility. It's not a commitment. We can see today that these possibilities are really uh, gaining some distance. But these negotiations, chapter by chapter, had as an objective to help Turkey to meet certain standards as regards European law and the principles that are of great importance to us. This was enabling Turkey to modernize and evolve in the right direction. And the most sincere Turkish Democrats were, were, were encouraging us to do this. Now uh, there is the uh, state of emergency, which is nothing like the French state of emergency. It's the government that today will create laws. And that's not at all the case in, in France. The state of emergency in France is simply a reinforcing of the administrative authority so that more uh, rapid interventions are possible. And you have some, you have similar measures in the United States with uh, the police can do searches in vehicles, in apartments, to make sure that no terrorist acts are under are being prepared. And then the judge takes over. So there's really it's nothing that is comparable. So we have expressed our our concern and that is something that should be done. We would like to have a relationship of trust, a peaceful relationship with Turkey. We must not forget that Turkey is the country that is welcoming the highest number of Syrian refugees, two and a half million, and they're being well treated. And that is why the international community, Europe, really supported Turkey to help Turkey. There was an, an agreement on welcoming refugees between the European Union and Turkey, and Turkey is a member of NATO. But we are going through a time when the risk is that the Turkish government might take advantage of what has happened or what was attempted to set up a regime that could become an autocratic regime. So. It is our duty, even if it is not popular. I was called to order, till I'm being told I should take care of my own business. I'm trying to take care of those matters that concern my country, but I think we also have the duty to tell certain truths. And the 28 that met in Brussels uh, last Monday, we received John Kerry for breakfast. We all said the same thing. Mr. Minister, let me turn to a subject you did not touch upon in your remarks, and that's Russia. Um, one area of strong German-French cooperation has been in the Normandy format vis-a-vis -vis Russia. We get a sense, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there may be a change of attitude in, French, in France and French policy towards Russia. There are more comments that the sanctions against Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine are not working? Do we have to do something else? Certainly we're hearing different voices from the right uh, that uh, France needs to perhaps return to business as usual uh, with Russia economically. Help us understand your, as you've worked through the Normandy format and, and working in the NATO format, the NATO-Russia Council obviously, um, what does the future hold for France's relationship with Russia, Europe's relationship with Russia, the transatlantic relationship with Russia? 
Well, I have often said that Russia is not an adversary, it's a partner, but with whom we have some disagreements and with whom we have to speak frankly. But this is an, an old nation which has, of course, been traumatized by the disappearance of the Soviet Union, which for it was the opportunity of playing a role with great, a role with great power. But for a few, and for a few years, there has been this commitment by Russia to play, uh, play once again this role of a great power, often seeking uh, to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the United States rather than with other nations, it's a, even though it's, of course, more complex. There was this decision by Russia to call into question the uh, borders established with the Second World War, with the uh, invasion of Crimea, the events in the east of Ukraine. I won't go back to all the details of what happened, but this uh, brought about a reaction by the international community, specifically Europe, uh, to say we can't accept this matter of respecting borders uh, is, is really an essential, a key matter. And in fact, the uh, ex-Soviet Union had committed in the Helsinki Accords to not touch the borders. That's what was done. So we really needed to take action. And this was uh, translated by the European Union's decision to, to put in place sanctions. And then we were in an impasse. There was the anniversary of the of Normandy, uh, the uh, landing. Uh, there you remember the presence of all the heads of state. I was uh, no longer part of the government, but I was invited to the ceremony, which was very impressive, very moving. We saw everything on the screen before this beach, and there there was this initiative taken by France to uh, uh, encourage dialogue among those who are no longer speaking, Merkel, uh, François Hollande, Obama, uh, and there was this idea to come up with the, the Normandy format, and here we are. And we are constantly repeating every time it's needed, either with ministers or with the presidents and heads of state, heads of state, to really bring life to this Normandy format with advances and steps backwards. I have this impression today that today we're going backwards. Who is responsible for this situation? Is it the Russians? Is it the Ukrainians? I wonder sometimes, as if at really each was satisfied with the status quo, but the status quo is not satisfactory for us. So we will continue to attempt to find a solution with the sanctions. That was very specific. It's not an objective. It's we would like to lift the sanctions, but signs need to be given. When I went to Moscow, I said to Putin, I said, if you want this, it's easy. If you go forward and you will see that we will open the way to a possible gradual lifting of the sanctions. Why not? But today, when the deadline arrived, well, the Europeans had to realize that nothing had changed enough to lift the sanctions. So they were reactivated for six months. But we always give this opportunity to launching the dialogue again. This is anyway the commitment that we've made. And we will continually start over knowing that in our relationship with, with Russia, there is this tragedy of Syria, which is the 
most painful, most difficult subject. And there again, we hope for negotiations to start again because there's no military solution. There's just the peace process with negotiations, but this needs to go through concrete signs. Again, that is the rule of the Aleppo uh, headquarters uh, to stop the, the the bombing by the Assad regime, but also the Russian, Russian support to uh, allow humanitarian aid to begin again and put in place in conditions which have stopped. They were existed for several months and then there was a ceasefire and now today it's over. So we need to start over with this. We need this to, to begin again. There's no other way. So Russia is a difficult partner, but is a partner nonetheless. Fantastic, Mr. Minister. One last question. I could not agree with you more. You had such a comprehensive overview of, of what the UK referendum has meant to Europe, and you mentioned about the need for reinvention of Europe. So my question is, whose image would that reinvention be? Will it be a French vision of reinvention that has a very different economic posture? Will, will it be a German reinvention, which also has a very different economic perspective? Or can the two create a joint vision? <laughs> no, but it's actually more complicated. It's more complicated for, and then you want me to simplify things, <laughs> or for such a complicated uh, idea or a complicated matter, we we need simple ideas. I would say the Germans and the French cannot decide for other Europeans alone. That's clear. But at the same time, there's always a certain mistrust towards other countries, especially those who joined us more recently after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, who say, careful, don't decide for us. But at the same time, I do feel that when the Germans and the French don't go forward together, well, we wonder what's going on. So it's a really subtle play between the two that needs to happen. So I said earlier that with my colleague Sadmaro that we had uh, created a paper that came out just after Brexit and there were some negative reactions. Why did you prepare this paper? Uh, some said, oh, the Germans and the Brit and the French want to uh, decide for us. And all the bilateral exchanges that I had, I spoke with each. And they said, thank you, because it's helping us to reflect uh, on what we might do. So we need to have an approach for, for what's to follow in Europe. That's why we need to advance in an orderly manner, organize negotiations for the exit of Great Britain, use all of our energy, our, our political intelligence, and concentrate on this question for months, even more. So all the energy that we need to really re uh, return life to Europe will be, will be taken away. And that's not a good thing. So we can't devote everything to that effort. So uh, we'll, we need to start with what we have accomplished, see what we can improve. I've cited certain examples. And at the same time, uh, European citizens uh, 
must be aware, must be convinced that Europe protects them well, that it protects them well for their internal security, that it protects them well as regards external threats, and that at the same time it's preparing for the future, and especially for youth, as I was explaining earlier, that it's capable of putting in place concrete projects and plans for investment, innovation, ecological transition for uh, youth programs, and that it be affirmed as a community of values, more so than it's already doing. It does so, but that it be more concrete. And this is essential in the uncertain world in which we find ourselves. But this protection is important also for our lifestyle, the, the way that we live together, the art of living, the protection of, of, of important principles, basic principles. You see that when you want to put in place rules against those who want to avoid playing ta paying taxes and for new technologies, uh, who want to escape uh, uh, companies like Google, this is a good way of, of responding, of fighting Uh, fiscal uh, tax uh, havens, everything that puts into question the principles of law. France must really lead the way in this regard, and that's how citizens' confidence will come will return to Europe. Uh, the less Europe gives the impressions to its citizens uh, that protecting is simply being behind a wall. It, the, your citizens have to believe that they're being protected by preparing for the future, uh, adopting or, or conducting good multilateral nego negotiations. For example, the uh, free trade agreements. Why uh, is there a difficulty for the TTP? Uh, because the European, the, the uh, we are not at all against uh, you know free trade, but not at any price. That's what I often say to John Kerry, who says, "Oh, we need an agreement. We need an agreement." Yes, John, an agreement, but not any agreement, because if we don't give guarantees, then it'll be an argument for the populist. And you have noticed that even in the U.S., it's become, become an argument for the populist movements. There is a good reference, in fact, if you think about a free trade agreement, and that's the agreement with Europe and Canada. It was successful. It, taken, it took into account many questions that we were asking ourselves and that we put on the table, and we have that as a reference. It's not the end of free trade. We can imagine things differently. So if we don't do all of this, I fear that populism will continue to advance. It will affect the things that we have patiently built together. And we don't have the right to allow this to happen. You know, I'm in a country where the extreme right is really gaining more and more votes. And certain countries thought they were protected from this. The Germans, for example. And then again, there's a nationalist extreme right party that's really also uh, on the rise with the federal elections coming up in September 2017. I think that my German friends are also very concerned, very worried. We need to look for the causes. There are probably many of them. And you in the US are uh, faced with the same problems, the same matters. I completely have, uh, have uh, tr trusting in the intelligence of American citizens. So all of this needs to be put on the table. When I was saying earlier that the work of researchers is useful, important for understanding deep mechanisms. It's really sincere. As ministry, as Minister of the of Foreign Affairs, uh, I am short on time, but I often receive researchers to try to understand the situation in the world better.
So I appreciate that. <laughs> Mr. Minister, I, I ask the easy questions. It's the audience that asks the really hard questions. So I'm going to now turn to you. We have my watch about 10 minutes. So let me take a few questions, Mr. Minister, if I might. Uh, we have microphones. If you could please introduce yourself and be very brief uh, with the questions, particularly for our translators, but to allow the minister to answer as many questions. So I see one right there. We'll start in the middle right here, sir. Uh, and please speak well into that microphone. It's sometimes hard Is to it, hear. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Francois Bejean, uh, Catalyst Partners. So I've been in DC for 32 years, but je vais m'adresser en français. I'm going to speak in French. You spoke of Europe, a Europe that is turning inward. Uh, are there not also risks that France might turn inward when we look at Brexit and the uh, vote of the Labour Party who feel abandoned? Same thing is happening in France and to go back to your international role, if we look at the Muslim world, not just the extremists, but all of the Muslim world and the extreme right or the extreme left, uh, both of which have their negative aspects, aren't there not risks in France in this regard? Thank you very much for your visit. Question right there, sir, right there. Thank you. Hello, Lara Aleme with Safadi Foundation, an organization dedicated to Lebanon's governance and democracy. I wanted to ask you about your trip last week to Beirut, where you spent two days meeting with local leaders, and ask you what you could share with us about those meetings, and specifically any insight you may have into the external patrons of Saudi Arabia and Iran and what their position is on the election of a president. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Great. Why don't we take one more over there, please? Thank you. And then I'll let you respond. Monsieur le Ministre, je suis Philippe. Mr. Minister, I'm Philippe Lecor from the Brookings Institute. I'm also addressing you in French. I wanted to know what you could tell us about the meeting that took place the last two days with the ministers of defense and of foreign affairs. Do you think that the, the efforts in, for international cooperation in terrorism are useful internationally and also at the European level? Or do you think it's mainly a, a national problem, a domestic problem in France? I'm talking specifically about the uh, events in Nice and the consequences. Yes, I think that a meeting like this one where the entire world is, is, is represented, all, all the continents, it convinces me even more that this matter is not a French or European matter. I was discussing earlier with my Australian colleague or counterpart and asking him how things were going in his country. I asked a very specific question as to whether there are young people in your country who go to Syria to go to war uh, with the Islamic State. And he said yes. Uh, so uh, Australia is very, very far. Uh, she told me, no, that she is faced with the same problem because in the same geographic area, there are influences. She spoke of the Philippines, Indonesia, and so forth. It's not a matter of stigmatizing countries 
because they have majority uh, Muslim or, uh, inhabitants and who are, for the most part, peaceful. But the entire world is facing the same problems. And it's important that we answer these questions together and, and respond to these problems together. Uh, in terms of the question that is about Lebanon, uh, this there's a, a great deal of work to be done, not just on the military angle, but also on the, pol the political angle, development angle, reconciliation, uh, and civil society. I would take the example of Lebanon, since I was asked about it. Lebanon is a political construct, which is quite original. It is a multi-religious country and government in a, a very unstable region. And today, it is a country that has no president of the republic. So I spent many hours. I uh, met with every political party, not to say what France is dictating. That would be interfering, but to try to facilitate things and to encourage everyone to find a solution, a compromise. But I noted that this wasn't a country where the neighbors didn't have an influence, whether it was Saudi Arabia or Iran. So when I see my Iranian or, or, or Saudi counterparts, I tell them, please stop blocking the situation because what, what are we going towards? This country is very fragile and it is made even more fragile by the war in Syria. It is a country that has received or is receiving more than a million Syrian refugees with Palestinian camps. It's about a third of the population that it represents. This is a country where there's a lot of tension despite the generosity of the people. So it is clear that the solutions there are not just military. There is a need for negotiation, peace, security, development, justice. Another example, Iraq. Unfortunately, everyone remembers the, the mistake that was the military intervention in Iraq and all the consequences. I won't describe them all. You know them all. But again, there we see that the coalition is making Daesh lose ground in an important way in Iraq. The uh, Islamic State lost 40% of the territory that it had gained in Iraq, but it's clear that it's not enough to free a city or a region. You have to create the conditions afterwards for it to function, operate, for no one to feel excluded, that there not be settling of accounts with everyone. It is that work, that difficult work, that was at the heart of our meeting. I, I was part of exchanges that I will not make public, but I was part of exchanges or saw them where I see the system or the plan that is being set up to create a reconciliation, a situation where reconciliation is possible. In Syria, it's not done, but we have to continue to work. That's our role. That will be the best guarantee. It's not a matter of winning or conquering the Islamic State or Daesh. We need to build something. And the, the Islamic State, Daesh is now also an ideology, even if we, even if it's losing ground in, in its territories, in ruling territories, it's an ideology that's being spread everywhere in the world. Um, with a little group, you can still be, a, you're still able to organize a, an attack. You saw what happened in Orlando and in, and in Nice. 
This is a terrible thing to see. This is a very long fight, but which needs us to mobilize all the values that we believe in and make them concrete everywhere in the world. Uh, humanity has uh, advanced a great deal, and it's possible, it's possible that it might regress. And we see examples of this now. Is France tempted by, to turn inward? Of course it's tempted. But as I said earlier in my speech, that would no longer be France. It is really the role of political leaders today to motivate the French to look deeply into themselves and see where their strength lies for the future. Fight, therefore, without giving morality lessons to anyone, but fight those who allow themselves to go the easy way. Unfortunately, I, I know that I won't do internal poli French politics here, but the alternative is, is simplistic populism. So we have to hold our ground. We have to fight, protect ourselves, fight to defend a certain mo mo model of values. If we don't do that, no one will. Because in history of, of the history of democracy, there's always been a moment where we were ready to abandon everything in the name of different causes. Put democracy in, par in parentheses, values in parentheses. We do not have the right to do that. Our history is too marked by that. At a certain point, it's really a lack, it's a form of cowardice. We don't have the right to do that. It's better to lose an election than to lose your soul. We need, we need to fight for liberty and democracy. That's fundamental. Otherwise, we end up in, in Munich. I'm, I'm talking about Munich before the, the Second World War. And it also happened in France when the Germans occupied France, the Nazis. Marichal uh, Pétain asked uh, for the armistice with the German, and then there was a meeting at the parliament, and there was a vote. And this leaves deep effects. And those who uh, resisted are, I'm not saying that's the same circumstance. France is not occupied, of course, but and luckily, but it is threatened. And for this, we have to fight against this threat, protect ourselves, and defend what is what we have the most in common. And that is really what we have in common with the United States, with humanity, with many other countries. And it is an honor for us to do this, even if it's difficult. But it, it is mostly our duty to do so. Think of a better way to conclude our conversation. Democracies build. <laughs> Terrorists you. attempt to destroy, but we're going to build it better and bigger. Thank you for your words. Thank you very much. I just, before, oh, hold on a second. I, I want you to applaud a lot, but I just want to ask you to stay seated when we escort the minister out. And then when we're escorted out, please enjoy a wonderful oh, yes. reception and our wonderful partnership with the French Embassy. We are absolutely <laughs> delighted to have the end of the day. So now, please join me in thanking the minister for a great conversation. Thank you.